just because somebody looks fine and is showing up at one point doesn't mean that they're completely okay and they can do it again. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it's like to live with a long-term condition and the impact that it can have, especially with post-exertional fatigue or pain and the ability that that has on our ability to work or just generally exist in the world. And I would encourage employers to be open and to be curious and to ask questions about what type of support people need and how they work best in order to help support them be able to do their best work. Welcome to another episode of the Disabled Debrief podcast with Conscious Being magazine, a podcast exploring the high-low mix of subjects of interest to disabled women and non-binary individuals. I'm your usual host, journalist and speaker Lydia Wilkins. For this episode, we'll be talking to Natasha Lipman, a former BBC journalist, now a freelance writer over on Substack and the host of the Restroom podcast. Natasha writes about the world of chronic illness and disability. For this episode, we have done a deep dive into chronic illness and what she wants you to know about this topic. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for coming on the podcast. As my opening question to you, when it comes to chronic illness, there are so many stereotypes and there's a lot of stigma associated with the term chronic illness. What was it that led to you becoming freelance? That's something that seems to be more and more common these days. I always swore that I'd never go freelance again, (laughs) honestly. I always thought when I was younger that freelance would be the way to go because um, I would have more control over my health and I had more control over my time and my energy and then I got a job at the BBC and I didn't think I'd be able to hold down a full-time job and I did for years with adjustments and support but in from the end of 2020 and last year I had a really severe flare-up um just a lot of things were kind of piling on top of each other and my health was getting worse and worse I went through opioid withdrawal twice um my grandma died and like a lot of other things were happening and my health just kind of completely took um a bit of a nosedive and I was having a really hard time and the thing that was difficult about my job at the BBC was that I was a writer and my job was literally to sit and write long form articles and I couldn't write and so I would just stare at the screen and I would stare at these articles I had to write or these like multiple thousand word transcripts and I just couldn't get anything out Um, and I think it was just a combination of feeling really unwell not being able to do the work that I needed to do um that made me start thinking about leaving um and then I was on sick leave for quite a long time and it gave me time to reevaluate my whole relationship with work and my relationship with my career and I ended up leaving in January of this year um And I would say that I would never have been able to go freelance if my partner didn't have a well-paying job. And I knew that we could, you know, afford to, for me to be able to do that. 
And I have been kind of working on my blog and my podcast and on social media for many, many years. So I had already been working on things that had built me up a network to be able to tap into for when I was going freelance. Tell us more about the restroom. How did that come about and why did you decide to start podcasting? It's actually quite funny because um, I like writing very, very long articles um, and that's not particularly accessible for a lot of people. So I initially started the restroom as a way of just recording things that I knew were going to be really, really long and give people the opportunity to have something in a different format that might be more accessible for some people. I had a lot of ideas of what I wanted to do and projects and different kinds of episodes and series and all of that. But I knew realistically that the amount of work that goes into a podcast was not something that I had the energy to be able to do myself. So I decided that I would hire producers to work with me and I'm working with ex-BBC producers, award-winning producers, and they're absolutely amazing. And the pressure it takes off of me, not only to be able to work with people who are experts in audio, which I am not, audio storytelling and written storytelling are very different. And that's very interesting because I actually, at the BBC, I, I used to turn podcasts into articles sometimes and it's really interesting thinking about the differences in what we would have put in a written piece versus what they put in a podcast um and yeah I have been working with my producers since September of last year and I have so many things that I want to be able to do with it I'm particularly interested in what are the things that people living with long-term conditions are not told by their doctors that they should be told especially when it comes to management and how to live well with these conditions or how to live as well as possible or how to find the best way to live with these conditions for your what you want and what you need in your life so I'm really interested in working with experts and just exploring this world of chronic illness invisible illness accessibility always with an eye to these conditions that are very poorly researched, poorly funded, poorly understood. How did you get to the name of the restroom? My friend Lucy came up with it. She's really good with names. And um, I need to rest a lot, but also it's a pun on a toilet, which is really sick. Because in America, they call bath like toilets the restroom. Um, oh. <laughs> so it, like it's not an intentional pun on a toilet, um, but I kind of like that given I spend a quite a fair amount of time in the loo so that um, yeah I know we just thought it was funny and so we went and did that. It's really interesting just to go back a little bit when it comes to making a longer form piece accessible you talked about making it into an audio form just so it would reach more people however do you think that there is perhaps a place for more thoughtful, perhaps even slower content than we are used to in the digital age? Absolutely. I have been thinking about this a lot and it's part of the reason I started my newsletter. I actually started it in a tantrum because I was really annoyed with Instagram. So I have my primary, and you can't see this if you're listening, but Lydia is laughing here. Um, but I, I, I think that... Um, I, well, I've had a platform on Instagram for quite a while and I have, you know, a fair following on there. And so I was able to kind of do some interesting things on social media, but the Instagram algorithm keeps changing, the app keeps changing. And because I don't spend a lot of time on social media anymore and I've moved away from that, 
it's really frustrating to have built an audience for your work only for then your work to not be shown and so you put a lot of time and effort into what you're doing for no one really to see it and Instagram was never an uh, there's never a writing first platform but it allowed it and now it really just is not built for like the the changes that came that at least I got last week it's completely ruined (laughs) for me so I um I thought that writing is something that I've always wanted to do and I wanted to find a way to make writing more sustainable and not feeling like I have to feed an algorithm um and so I decided to start my Substack because I think the problem with social media is it's so very reactive and over the years we're expected to put more and more content online it started off on the feed and then it was stories Instagram TV and reels and all of these things and you have to engage with these things multiple times a week in order to you know have your posts seen or at least picked up by the algorithm I don't think that that makes for good sustainable content especially if you're tired (laughs) um and the other thing is like my life isn't very interesting outside of you know I I had nothing to share I used to feel like oh what can I share on Instagram stories and like just trying to find anything to post on there so that it like things would get pushed on the algorithm so that the things that I wanted to get seen would be seen um and I just I don't want to play that game it's not healthy for me it's not a good use of my time or energy and so I wanted to think about longer form pieces longer form audio um what are things that I feel like are missing in the space or things that I can offer in addition to things that already exist in the space that are a bit slower or a bit more thoughtful um and don't have to be pushed out all of the time in order to feed an algorithm do you perhaps think that's more accessible to people reading your stuff who are chronically ill? Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting because we all take in information differently. I'm I'm a reader predominantly. I am a very, very quick reader. And so it's the easiest way for me to take in information. I generally will not choose to do audio first for anything um, when it comes to listening. Talking is another question, like talking I can do. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the audience, it's very interesting because I think there's something nice about really bite-sized pieces and things that you can do on Instagram and they're very good for like a quick win for the audience they might read something that they find really interesting or they might learn something or they might feel validated by it but inherently you're limited by how much you can put on those platforms in terms of depth of content so you can get very very valuable very very good content on those things but there's inherently going to be a lack of depth there on some level because just you're limited by space um I I do think it's interesting in terms of like how much content we consume on something like social media um, and how how long we spend doing it so you could spend 20 minutes on social media kind of scrolling through a feed um and just scrolling 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 or you could spend 20 minutes reading something really in depth and whether you want to do that is completely personal to you I know a lot of people that hate doing that and that's completely fine um and then the other question is how much content is too much content to be putting out on a long form platform for people to be able to read so if you've got an audience who are fatigued who do experience pain who don't have much energy 
to be able to give to reading content online. It's a really interesting balance about how you try and split up what information you're putting out there and how you present it. Um, and that's something that I'm always trying to think about because my tendency is to, um, to give a lot. Um, and I'm trying to figure out the most accessible way for that to be for people. But I, I think rather than putting out, you know, several posts on social media a week and all of that stuff I'd rather put my time and energy into something that I think is going to ultimately provide more value and my hope is that the time that is spared from an audience perspective kind of going through some of those other things they would hopefully then be able to engage with a more longer form piece of content even if they have to go and come back to it um, or press pause on it Um, that's my hope anyway. (laughs) When it comes to chronic illness, what do you wish that collaborators and other people perhaps in the workplace should know? What should we know about the label and how can we help? I think the hardest thing about chronic illness is that they're just generally very understood and that you can't necessarily see that someone is ill. Although it is interesting, a lot of people have been saying you can see it you've just not been paying attention which I think is quite interesting because I think if if, um, there's lots of signs um, quite often that you know someone might be living with a chronic condition but a lot of people don't know how to spot that I think the biggest thing for me is understanding post-exertional malaise and the repercussions of doing an activity so you know I could go to the office for a few hours and I would run on adrenaline and I would be very chatty and I would go 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 and then I wouldn't be able to really do much for a week so it was a very um it was a very difficult transition at the beginning um and I think the pandemic has shifted the way we view remote work in a lot of cases just because somebody looks fine and is showing up at one point doesn't mean that they're completely okay and they can do it again. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it's like to live with a long-term condition and the impact that it can have, especially with post-exertional fatigue or pain and the ability that that has on our ability to work or just generally exist in the world. And I would encourage employers to be open and to be curious and to ask questions about what type of support people need and how they work best in order to help support them be able to do their best work. This episode of the Disabled Debrief podcast is sponsored by Black Crowned Hibiscus Gin. British with an African twist, this is a premium distilled gin infusing African and Caribbean botanicals with British gin. And listeners can now get 10% off with the code DDP10. Make sure you visit blackcrowngin.com. What about medical care? Is there perhaps something that you would like medical professionals to know about chronic illness? I think that's one of the biggest things that interests me with my podcast is what is the world of medical care like for people living with long term? What is the world like for people living with long term conditions and what type of support should they be getting that they're not? I actually have an episode coming out soon. I don't know where that'll be in relation to when this comes out about 
the way self-management is conceptualized within the NHS and the problems with it, it's really, really interesting. Um, first of all, I would hope that there is becoming, first of all, I think ultimately we've all heard this and it's just abounds in, in the chronic illness communities online. And we've seen this more and more with long COVID that people who have conditions that don't neatly fill into people who don't have conditions that fit neatly into boxes that most GPs understand, they're dismissed, they're gaslit, they're told there's nothing wrong with them, they're told that it's all in their head. That is causing so much harm to patients that they're not able to, even just from the outset, be believed and then be able to get appropriate care and treatment. One of the issues for a lot of conditions that fall within the quote-unquote chronic illness bracket is that appropriate care and treatment still isn't that great because we still don't have enough research funding or resources available for people who live with these conditions. So I'll give you an example. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I was diagnosed in 2009. I'm very lucky to have access to private care and I self-fund my care. But if I wanted to go or if I had to go, but if I had to go on the NHS, I would probably be offered six physiotherapy sessions for how to learn how to manage my condition. I spoke to a physiotherapist on the NHS and she was really lovely. And she said to me, our job is to empower you to learn how to manage your condition. I said, that's great. But for a lot of people, EDS can manifest as significant instability in the joints, significant physical disabilities, issues with muscles, issues with so many different things. And many people, because they do not get timely care and treatment, they end up becoming a lot more disabled than they would have done if they had been given care in a timely manner and care that was appropriate and safe for them. Another issue is that people are just generally pushed too far and then they end up getting worse. And that's something that happened to me. Um, I was pushed way too far. I ended up stopping because I was just getting worse and worse. And then I got worse and worse because I wasn't doing the things that can help me. I know that with my type of condition, it requires a lot of physical work. And I have spent the last five or six years now undoing all of the damage from my 20s and probably before that um, from not having the care that I need. And I've been seeing someone every week, sometimes twice a week to be able to do that. It is a condition that requires long-term care and that is just simply not available on the NHS. And so we're seeing significant disability that could be avoided and it's really heartbreaking and it's really frustrating. The other thing I'll say is even some of the more simple, well, I, I say simple, I find it really bloody difficult, but something like pacing. I was told to pace basically my whole life. No one ever actually taught me what it was. And then I had a one hour session with a chronically ill occupational therapist who completely transformed the way that I view energy management. And I remember afterwards being quite angry and thinking if everyone who was diagnosed, one of the first things they got was a few sessions with an occupational therapist to help them figure out how to implement certain strategies into their life. I think it could make quite a significant difference, not just in terms of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, but also in terms of helping them conceptualize their illness in their life. Because I think so many people don't get any care and support that they're left to get worse and worse and worse and they lose and they lose and they lose so much from their life that it just, it's very frustrating and it's very upsetting. And I think that is a big motivator behind my podcast to try and make some of this 
information more accessible to people. Um, I can't change the NHS. I can't change the system, but maybe I can put out some information that can help people do something small that can have a positive impact on their day-to-day life. When it comes to the context of the pandemic, what do you think in terms of chronic illness we need to be talking about more? I think long COVID has highlighted the lack of care and support that has been available for people living with conditions that we're seeing now in people who have long COVID. We're seeing where the gaps in funding, um, the discrimination that people face, the lack of appropriate training for medical professionals to deal with these types of things. The waiting lists were already exceedingly long for for most people, not much care in the first place. This has completely exploded with long COVID. And so everything that we're seeing now with people who are experiencing post-viral issues, they are not a surprise for people living. They're not a surprise for people who have lived with these conditions beforehand because we have seen and people have been shouting about this for decades. So the response to long COVID has been a direct result of failures that have existed for a very, very long time. It is my hope that this is the wake up call and we are seeing a lot more recognition, sadly, because a lot of medics have been getting long COVID and they have reevaluated how they treated people with these types of conditions beforehand. And they have been experiencing the same gaslighting and lack of care and support from their colleagues, which was a real eye opener for them. I think the pandemic also showed that there are other and better ways of being able to work, of being able to socialize, of being able to do a lot of things. And that a lot of the accessibility things people had been asking for for a really long time was suddenly available within the space of a week or two. And I think that was very difficult for a lot of people with disabilities and chronic illnesses at the beginning of the pandemic, because they had to lose out on so many things that they had wanted in their life because they were told that these things were not available and then suddenly they were. I know, for example, now companies that are hiring people who are offering different salaries for the same job for people who want to work remotely, 100% remotely, and that is discriminatory for people who do not have a choice but to work from home. Um, And it's, it's one of those things where we saw a lot of what could be possible and it is my hope that lessons will be learned from that. Whether that will be the case is, a, is another question, but especially when it comes to the treatments of things like post-viral fatigue, POTS, it is my hope that the research funding, treatment and care of people living with these long-term conditions will finally be taken seriously as a result of long COVID. It is extremely frustrating and heartbreaking that it has taken this to get to that point. But I really do hope that we will be able to see a significant increase with hope for people for the future. And as one final question to bring this conversation to a close, is there anything else that you would like to add that you've perhaps not said in terms of this conversation? One of the things I think is important to recognise that I wouldn't be here talking to you if I hadn't had the financial resources to be able to stop working when I had to, to have family care and support and people to help me and to be able to get care that I needed. There are so many people that do not have access to these things. And it means that 
they are experiencing significant disability without that care and support. And what that then means when we're talking about not only access to medical care, but access to the workforce, if that is something that people want, access to social life, access to all of these types of things. And that's something that I think about a lot in my work, that I know that I am in no way representative of the average person in the chronic illness community. And so I want to try and do what I can to provide resources for people that don't have access to those types of things while working with medical professionals to try and help them make these resources more accessible. And it's been very interesting because I've worked um, in consultancy with medical professionals, with startups that work specifically in spaces for chronic illness. And over the years, it's been very interesting talking to medical professionals who do an amazing job and they from my perspective, their approach is the right approach. I mean, it's the right approach for me. It might not be the right approach for everyone. Um, and just a quick tangent, I think when we're talking about living with and managing these conditions, there is no one right answer. Everyone is completely different from the way they live to what they want, to their personality, to their resources, to absolutely everything. We cannot talk about managing these conditions and act as if it's a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's what makes these conditions so difficult is they are extremely, extremely variable. You can have symptoms that show up, last for two months and then go away. You have all of these different things that have to go into how we talk about these things. But it's been very interesting talking to medical professionals who I feel have a really, really great approach. But that information isn't being trickled down to patients outside of the limited patients who are lucky enough to get to see them in clinic. Um, and so I think it opens up a wider question on the role of health communication um, and the role of community when it comes to figuring out how to live with and manage these conditions. Mm-hmm.